Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and on podcast. It's actually looking, it's looking a bit lean and mean here in the studio. Our medical student misdiagnosis is wandering around Dublin somewhere, being taught all there is to know about medicine by the Irish. Uh, and Prudence, dear, our resident scientist, researcher and psychotherapist is, well, actually, does anyone know where Prudence is? I, th- I think in Vietnam. In Vietnam. Hmm. Oh, she could be back here for radiotherapy. Anyway, that voice you just heard are the dulcet tones of our psychologist and guru on all matters of mind, body and soul. Rainbow Doc, so good to have you back, Rainbow. Yeah, good morning, Dr Nick. Thank good you for morning, being here. Good morning, PB. And <laughs> Sorry, I preempted that. And the segue to the man as imposing of intellect as he is elegantly groomed of facial hair. <laughs> we had the man who can both twiddle all the knobs and buttons and dazzle us with his contributions from behind the microphone, sometimes at the same time. Welcome, uh, panel Vita. Yeah, with the um, pat my stomach and rub my head or something. Yeah, that's right. I used Good to practice morning. that for hours. Uh, <laughs> a life skill. So Good today, morning, both of you. Today we'll be talking about some public health issues from bowel cancer screening and why we, particularly we men, are not great at doing it. Uh, Private health insurance, how the premiums are decided and then how they're communicated or not. And finally, we'll be having a look at codeine, that ingredient of things like Nurofen Plus and Panadine, a drug which went on prescription only last year and some new research with some surprising results. But first, before all that, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Um, we've got some news happening and you're getting very excited about disease eradication. I love um, one of my um, a little bit of uh, academic background is uh, with some things to do with global health. And so I... Um, follow uh, a few of the events that uh, the World Health Organization gets up to and just this past week they um, announced the eradication of type 3 poliovirus which is no small deal Um, uh, type 3 so there's there's still um, two others one other has um, uh, much further away from being eradicated but type 3 is gone but this is after a really long campaign. Um, as far back as I think the late 80s it was, um, they declared that it would be eradicated by year 2000. So we're into 2019 mm-hmm. and um, we've just um, just eradicated. So it's, it's, it's wonderful news. Um, polio obviously is something that has affected huge populations around the world, particularly the poor. Um, and um, to have it gone is a great um, achievement on, for those those vulnerable um, communities. But I just love it when science has a win. Yes, <laughs> you know, um, we, you know, we're, we're still holding out for the the holy grail with cancer and so on. It's a disease we forget about. I still have two patients who had polio as kids uh, and have bad legs or um, yeah. unable to walk properly because of it. 
Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's great news. Um, in um, looking into it, um, found out I've, I've got to share with you a great piece of trivia. We're all familiar with the iron lung, right? And especially from just images of how yeah. polio was treated, especially in the 30s and 40s. <laughs> Apparently a bloke in Adelaide um, in 1937 invented the plywood lungs. Well, the cut price version. This is cut the Kmart iron lung. And you know, and so the, the the main objective here was to make it more portable. That was for one, and for and which it did achieve. It ended up being um, distributed throughout the Commonwealth, and for number two, a whole lot cheaper. So it was able to be delivered to the communities that needed the most. Um, and just, uh, I think, just before we uh, wrap it up as a news item. Um, thought I'd just make a mention of what it means to eradicate. It's not as Ooh. simple as it's no longer in the wild. Um, eradication requires, you know, a, a couple of considerations, not least of which is um, how to control it in lab samples. Because obviously research still can continues, vaccines still want to be um, held in stock and so on, just in case. Um, in 1979, there was a famous case um, regarding smallpox. Effectively, within a couple of weeks of smallpox being declared eradicated, a, um, a patient went in the United States, went to their doctor and was diagnosed with the flu, right? Um, turns out they had smallpox. This person was living in a dormitory above a lab and the smallpox virus got out through the duct and so subsequently died. So um, there's, there's that precedent that reminds us of what's involved with... Um, 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 dealing with dealing with uh, these sorts of things in labs, Australia has, contains uh, it at the um, Peter Doherty Institute, um, and there are about fifty or sixty uh, labs around the world that still hold it. Hold smallpox. Yeah. I thought it was only in. Oh, the no, 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 polio. I was going to, uh, yeah, because yeah, smallpox polio. I think is only in the US and Russia, and they can't agree because <laughs> each thinks the other one's going to use it as a yeah. biological weapon. Yeah. So, yeah. what what's the process of actually declaring something eradicated in terms of, you know, how long it takes? How long do you wait until you can yeah. say it's gone? So, um, there's a there's an organisation that takes care of the governance, and that that organisation is called the Global Commission for the Certification of the Eradication of Poliomyelitis. That's a nice acronym. It is, yep. Um, it's seven years since Type 3 was last identified in the wild, so there's that period, and that happened to be in Nigeria. Um, there, there have been cases more recently in some senses, um, or you know, around earlier this uh, century in Afghanistan, Pakistan. Um, but then they had to do a uh, minimum number of uh, faecal samples to determine it's, it had gone from target areas. So they did 1.5 million faecal and sewerage samples um, have been tested around the world um, since, mm. since that time. Um, well, I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, it, it, well, you know, and hopefully, hopefully it's okay. Um, but uh, it's it, and there's a whole lot. I mean, it's a fascinating um, effort uh, story and a, and a tremendous effort for science to get. Uh, it is a great yeah. story. It's only the, it's only the yeah. third one, um, third um, um, eradication. Third eradication. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, smallpox being the first. Fascinating. Thank you, panel beta. Um, Rainbow, you've been thinking about it being Movember and uh, Awareness Days and so on. It, it, yeah, Movember, I think, is probably... You know, just, have you been on the Movember website ever? Yeah, I have. It's it's really quite exciting. Flavorsaver.com. <laughs> impressive, you know. It's... Uh, Movember was started in uh, 2000 and 
three by two Melbourne chaps and uh, is now a worldwide uh, awareness month where, I mean, everyone knows this, you start on the first of the month and you shave off all your facial hair if you have it and then you grow a beautiful moustache doing that month and take photos and get sponsors and raise an awful lot of money. It's in um, over 20 countries now. Um, and there's nothing a bloke likes more than an excuse to grow some facial hair. Well, it's... <laughs> I'm just looking at a panel beater over there who's got... You didn't think about shaving the, the, the beard part away for Movember? Not for a second. Not for a second. So Movember has kind of enlisted uh, Mo Bros and Mo Sisters, as they call them, um, to create Mo Ments and uh, events around their moustaches. The first time they did it, there were 30 men who did it for 30 days during November. And now they reckon there are over 300,000 Mo Bros and Mo Sisters. Yeah. I don't know if there's any Mo Brosters too, <laughs> non-binary people. I think that, that would be a good addition. Um, and the organisation is rated number 45 in the top um, non-government organisations in the world. So that's quite an achievement since 2003. It's not bad going, is it? It's not bad going Number 45 on what metric? I don't know. That's a harsh question a on really, a Sunday morning. That's a really We'll take that one question. on notice. <laughs> but I did ask you, you know, how do we get to eradication status, didn't I? So, Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, I can't answer that. Anyway, that. It seems really, really high. I mean, I think it's great. Whatever ranking it is, it's great. But, yeah, wow. But go on to the... Go on to their website and have a look oh, because it, it's, uh, it's really together. It's really slick and you can understand why they've enlisted so many people and one of the thing about awareness days because i've been looking a little bit about what makes a good awareness day is that you have to get or awareness month in this instance you have to get people to do something because when people yeah. do something then they talk about it yeah know? it's like the crazy socks for docks this sort of uh, idea that just wear something weird and wonderful on that particular day to raise awareness yeah you have to do something that's right yeah. and then you're going to talk about it and then people hear about it yeah. so last year they raised um uh 102.9 million dollars which is no wow. small amount that's a lot of money um and that goes towards men's health. Initially, it was just prostate cancer and t testicular cancer, mental health, suicide. Still 75% of suicides are amongst men. Um, and they're trying to change the, um, the fact that men die generally six years before women. Right, well probably take a little more than 102 million dollars to do that but it's a pretty good start isn't I... it so, <laughs> so well well done to all you men out there who are growing on those i sadly my attempts would be so appallingly and visually um inappropriate that i don't bother each year because yeah. i think my patients would all run a mile so. uh, but thanks for that that's fascinating stuff um we're going to be talking after this break we're going to be talking a little bit about bowel cancer screening so i'm looking forward to that in just a minute this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. 
I mean, we, we uh, decided that we'd look at public health a little bit today and um, it just happened on that day that I received a letter in the mail from the Australian government, which I don't get that often, wondering what it was. Uh, and this wasn't it, a robo-debt letter, was it? No, <laughs> it wasn't one of those. It was a, a, a notice that I was going to be receiving another letter from the Australian government, which would contain my poo pack to test for um, bowel cancer. So this is part of the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program, of which I am a part, I guess, being of a certain age, that age being between 50 and 74 years. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm somewhere in that age bracket. (laughs) I I think, Dr Nick, you may be part of this. While it is while it is actually very hard to believe that you, Rainbow, have reached that age because you look so youthful, it is really not hard to believe that I am in that age category and have had several of those invitations over quite a long period of years. Okay. And uh, panel beater, we know what we're talking about. Do I've we? heard of people reaching that age. You've heard of people reaching that age. Okay, so... Um, uh, Bowel cancer being the second most common cancer after lung cancer, and Australia has one of the highest rates in the world. Um, and 90% of the people who are diagnosed with bowel cancer are over the age of 50, 17,000 diagnosed in Australia each year, which is high. Um, but nine out of 10 cases of bowel cancer, if they're found early enough, are actually treatable, hence the screening program. Um, So people between the ages of 50 and 74 are screened every two years or given the opportunity to be screened every two years. This has been going on since 2006. And every year there are four million packs mailed out in, in 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 the post. So the response rate to this is 40%. Yes. Now, I think 40% is reasonably high. I think that's reasonably high given how kind of complicated it is. How complicated is it? So because you've got low expectations, you're satisfied with 40%. I guess, (laughs) yes, low expectations, yeah. Because there's a lot that goes into it. You know, you get sent your kit with your little kind of spatula pointy thing to dig into your turd. And, and and put into a um, little container and store in the fridge while you do the same procedure again. Uh, and I mean, then you're, you... you're right. I mean, when you open the packaging, it does look a bit intimidating. The process in the end is incredibly simple, but you're right. The, the, and at first glance, you go, my goodness, I've got all these tubes and swizzle sticks and pieces of plastic back paper and stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah. and as a medical practitioner, you're used to handling those kinds of things, yeah? Well, not in my own bathroom, but yes, I know what you mean. But, you know, as a psychologist, I don't handle these kinds of things in the, the, you know, as a routine thing, part of my work. So 40%, yeah, I thought that was reasonably high, but I wanted to look at the 60%, you know, the 60% that don't do this and find out why. And there's been quite a bit of research done into this. And the main reason that is cited or that has been found is fear. Yeah? Okay. Fear of what? Well, there's all sorts of fear. The, the most common fear is fear of having cancer. Yeah? Mm. This is one of the... This is the 11th most common f- phobia, the fear of 
having cancer, carcinophobia. But before we go to fear of cancer, mm-hmm. I mean, I would have thought the number one reason people don't do it is because they stick it on the shelf and think, oh, I should do that sometime, and they just don't get round to it. Yeah, that is one of the reasons, but not the most common reason. Okay. All yeah. right. So I'm talking about phobia yeah. related to cancer. That's a phobia. It's different from um, it just being scared of it. Um, an estimated two out of three people worry about having cancer. Um but that's just one of the fears. There's also the fear of germs, which is also, oh, okay. you know, really high up in the list of phobias. So just the, there'd be a lot of people, just the idea of putting your hand into the toilet area of that swizzle stick is too confronting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then there's a fear of the faeces in itself, uh, which also is a phobia, coprophobia or scatophobia. Mm-hmm. And again, we're talking about a, a phobia as opposed to just being scared. Yeah, um, and if you think about what you're doing when you're doing this, there is actually interaction with your feces and putting it in the fridge where you store your food, even though it's in a separate container. That is what you're being asked to do. So for a lot of people, that's really confronting. It does have a significant ick factor to it, doesn't it? It does have an ick factor. Yeah. The um, second most common reason for people not doing is the is the procedure actually having to, you know, the, the, the disgust at having to handle in some, even though you don't touch your faeces, of having to work Go near with it, it if yeah. you want. And yes. seeing the procedure as complex, seeing it as, um, you know, using your fridge, um, and other people wanting a health professional involved in this, you know, the sense that they are not able to do this properly and therefore the test won't be valid and, and wanting a health professional to be involved in it. I had a dinner with a friend last night who is involved in this program and I asked her, you know, do you do it? And when I asked her, she was a little bit, she kind of withdrew a little, was a little bit embarrassed. She said, oh, no, I just chuck it in the bin. And she said, oh, because that's what you do at the doctor's, yeah? Okay. Anyhow, we talked about it for a while and after talking about it, and I gave her a few figures I've done this morning, she said, I'm going to do it next time. And that's the third reason, that there's a kind of taboo around poo and people don't talk about this and therefore they don't know. They don't know uh, the high levels. They don't know that it's uh, bowel cancer is treatable and therefore they don't participate. You must be one of the few people who would bring a topic like that up at dinner with a friend. I'm actually fascinated with poo. <laughs> and I, mean, I don't want to... <laughs> go too much into it but um, I imagine you're familiar with the Bristol stool chart very familiar with it yeah. have it hanging on the wall yeah in the kitchen next to the fridge <laughs> but um the Bristol stool chart basically gives you the seven states that your poo might emerge in and uh what each state means and there are two kind of uh, grades, if you want, or forms of faeces that are regarded as healthy. And the other's an indication that, you know, there's constipation that you probably knew anyway, or that there might be some issue with your digestive system. Um, anyhow, but let's go back right. to this testing yeah, before I, just, I get dragged away into analysis you, of poo. A very basic question. Do we know what the response rates are by gender? Uh, women... Women are 
participate, I was looking for the word, uh, more than men. That's the what difference I isn't that great. I okay. it's 38% men, 42% women. Okay. So it's not that great. Similar. Yeah. yeah. Women are more likely to say that they don't want to do it because they find it disgusting. Whereas blokes just say they can't be bothered or... Yeah, or yeah. They, they're scared or yeah. whatever. Or they don't do it straight away, it sits on the shelf, and then they think it's too late. Yeah, so they can't you know, feel they don't, they can't do it now. Um, and then there's just the lack of knowledge around it. So here I'm talking about it, talking about poo. I'm not scared to talk about poo. <laughs> Can I throw something in the mix? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's possibly very badly put, but carry on. So um, alert that you were going to be talking about this. I, I, I went into behavioural psychology just to check out you know, and this sort of fits in with some work we've done on the show regarding um, public health campaigns in the past. You know, why, what, what, what do they do, and how do they do them? Scotland has just introduced a new test, um, and they um, their rates went with went up from fifty five percent to sixty five percent within the first six months of the new test, and the. Um, uh, the change was just that they simplified it. And so um, they looked at behavioural psychology and just by simplifying, just using, you know, Occam's razor as the as the driving principle um, or the law of parsimony, you know, just make it simple, make it easy, 10% within six months return increase. And their target was only 60%, so they actually went above target. So how do you simplify this? Because one of the problems is that it actually is a, a potentially a bit of a messy procedure. You've actually got to collect a bit, a bit of poo. Right, so they reduced the amount of sampling you had to do and the nature of the sampling and how quickly you turned around so you didn't have to put it in your fridge. Uh-huh. Right, so immediately that didn't. So they, through behavioural psychology, they looked at three particular dynamics, capability, opportunity and motivation. Right, so capability meant make it easy to do. Opportunity meant um, you um, were able to do it without um, too much time cost. Right, and motivation to address um, the issues. Um, Rainbow was just talking about um, be they fear or social stigma. They reduced it to one. I was going to say, did they reduce it to one and a half? No, <laughs> they reduced it to just one sample. Yeah. But how do you, even with one sample, how do you get over what you, Rainbow, are saying is one of the major barriers, which is that one of phobia? Because uh, that doesn't go well, away whether it's one sample or ten samples. Yeah, I'm, I mean, reducing that would be around awareness and, infam- you know, like educating people around it. But I'm assuming that I got the letter, the warning me that I would be getting this coming, may be an effort to try and get over that. Because... Many people have said, you know, they didn't know that they were going to get it. And they get this, you know, you turn 50, happy birthday, you get this poo pack. You happy know, birthday, you, know. you might have bowel cancer. Yeah, kind of thing. So the researchers who did this Scottish thing, and, and we have to accept there's probably some cultural differences even with Scotland and, and Australia. So it doesn't necessarily apply here. But these researchers, that what they did to um, test whether Occam's razor was the solution um, they looked at four interventions um, that were, were currently being uh, a part of the program. And that included um, the GP-endorsed invitation letter um, and uh, an enhanced reminder letter, 
but and perhaps the one they use this euphemism i think it's a euphemism for fear but let's see what you guys think and they also tested the impact of asking participants to reflect on the possible consequences of non-participation and anticipated regret intervention which i think is euphemistic for fear so if the participants were um, told, well, you do understand the prevalence of bowel cancer, you do understand the consequence of not early de- getting early detection, then that would motivate people. But in that, um, you know, capability, opportunity, motivation, that wasn't captured in the motivation. The, the change um, in that, um, those early interventions was 0.7% mm. in the, the GP's letter and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, as you talk about that, they're trying to generate... A different fear, a, yeah, know, yeah, a different fear that will motivate them to take take action. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this topic up because I think it's such a crucial one because it is one of those diseases which we can com- not completely, but we can very effectively prevent if we get onto it early. Well, they estimate in Australia we could save fifty nine thousand lives due to bowel con- cancer by two thousand and forty. It's a, it's a huge figure. But, yeah. So if you're listening out there and you're one of the 60% who's got their kit sitting in the cupboard, uh, this is your opportunity to send some poo to the government and it might, might even save your life. So please, please, please take that opportunity. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, Panel Vita, you've been thinking a bit about private health health insurance. What's the latest? Oh, I find private health insurance um, as a public policy area in Australia incredibly vexed and really frustrating. Um, um, We've got this fabulous system of Medicare in Australia. So... Um, um, and yet we've got this parallel system of, of private health insurance. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that over the last 12 months or so, private health cover has been getting a bit of attention. It, um, in early uh, 2018, um, uh, the Minister for Health, um, Greg Hunt, um, notified us all that they were going to do a not not a, not an official formal inquiry but a departmental um, investigation into into policies in, specifically in the way that policies were communicated to consumers um, the main issue being that um, they're uh, you know about um, uh, there are about 70,000 different policies <laughs> in Australia Right, and um, it, it, people, uh, you know, I equate it with um, trying to decide on your telephone plan. If you go to Vodafone, they'll tell you this, and you go to Telstra, they'll tell you, that. and you don't ever feel like you're comparing apples with apples, right? So, what um, this uh, um, departmental investigation was aiming to do is to try and find a system in which they could simplify the information. And so, you know, consumers who are looking into getting private health cover could compare apples with apples amongst all the health providers. About 80% of our of Australia's private health insurance is with five companies, but there are a lot more than those companies. Um, and um, the, the, um, the underlying principle was they wanted to divide all policies into gold, silver and bronze. 
And um, the recommendations were taken up and implemented earlier this year. And so as a result of the review of those 70,000 policies... Can I just ask, when you say the recommendations were taken up, was this fought tooth and nail by the companies or were they on board? They were generally on board. Okay. Generally on board because they still need to get some leverage over the funding of, you know, the rebates and private colour by the government. So they've got to stay in the good books to some extent, um, which comes into our story in just a moment. Um, and so gold, silver and bronze, that was the, the, the framework um, that uh, was suggested and it was adopted. And so that framework's now been available for the last um, six months or so. And uh, the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, um, uh, as well as Choice, although they were two separate um, um, reviews um, at the six-month mark, looked into it. And the decline and the opting out of private health insurance continues. And it seems that, um, you know, you might say, well, six months too early to tell. But if we do recognise that simultaneously people are opting out and there's not an increase in uptake, then there's clearly an issue. And this is not just something that's happened overnight. The reason that Hunt was um, looking into this in the first place was because there's a number of years where there's been a significant decline in Australia. What's what's happened to those companies that were bronze? Well, no, no, the companies what's weren't... The, what's the criteria the, here? The policies um, for gold, silver and bronze, um, not the companies, right? So all companies would have a gold cover, a silver cover and a bronze cover. And the differences pertain to things like whether you just have extras only, um, maybe you just have ambulance and, um, um, you know, a couple of um, extras that are related to your personal circumstances, then silver is more likely to be things that involve hospital and um, other care. Um, and your gold will be the higher premium type um, uh, policies where you've got more, even more choice um, over what, what is available to you. And they're probably also covers, not probably, they are also the sorts of covers where, you know, family cover is involved, you know, where you've got everything going on. Um, but the inquiry, even though they did that, um, even though they did that breakdown, they found that um, more than 215 silver policies cost more than gold policies. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> right? So, you know, step one, divide them all up. Step two, evaluate the costing. And they worked out that this wasn't even resolving the issue, right? And so one of the things the AMA had to say um, was that the policies remained unaffordable and there's no transparency. It, it's, it's a very vexed area, isn't it, private health insurance? We've done this in different form, forums anyway. And one of the difficulties is they've got this level premium. They have to charge everyone the same. The people who are fit and healthy who are not going to make claims generally don't take up private health insurance. All the people who are going to make massive claims uh, pay the same premium. And so you've got a pool, yeah. a diminishing pool of people subscribing, if you like, all of whom are the biggest users. Uh, very hard to see where that goes. Precisely. You know, the, the, the economic principle, the, the health economics of it, are that you get a bunch of people who don't need it at the moment, the young, um, to um, subscribe and buy in, um, and they fund those who do need it, principally the aged. Um, you know, and then everybody eventually becomes the aged and you get the new thing. But because the young aren't taking it up and those who are already in the system are 
exiting, um, there is what the AMA is actually called, and the Grattan Institute has come out and said that there's effectively a death spiral. Yeah. And now the and now the question isn't whether um, uh, we should look for ways to save the private health insurance industry, but whether it sh- should be present in our system at all. Um, and you know, in public policy, you ask what's the problem represented to be, and if and if if the solution is to have public uh, private health uh, private health cover then the problem would need to be something along the lines of our current system can't afford to look after everybody but when you look at where the government is currently subsidizing and funding the private sector an argument can be made well instead of that nine billion dollars out of 185 billion dollars roughly as our national health budget if nine billion dollars is going subsidizing private companies basically just put that nine billion bucks back into the public system um, and probably on a, a per capita basis would do just fine doesn't that bring us back to you know why we why private health insurance emerged in the first place you know, we, yeah. we don't want to go round the same cycle again. It's a it's a curious one. So the history of of private health insurance in Australia is is curious in its own way. So it's relatively young as a public health system compared to say Britain's NHS. Um, private um, private health was the main form of cover for most Australians um, up until eighty two when um, the Hawke a key in government brought in um, Medicare or returned to Medicare. Whitlam had a crack at it early, but Fraser had got rid of it. So in 82, when Medicare was renewed, um, uh, people started getting out of private cover and going into it and got down to about 30% um, of private um, and the rest public. And that history, I think, has a lot to say about the parallel systems in, in currently in place. And there's kind of like an ambiguity about the role of private health insurance in a system like Australia. As a practitioner working in the system, I always find this an incredibly vexing territory hmm. because I'm well aware that there are things which, if my patients want them through the public system, there are huge delays. Um, and if people can afford it and are able to pay for it, they want access to it earlier and are happy to pay for it. I see that's how a private system develops. I, I don't agree with it. I don't think it should be that way, but yeah. I can see why it happens. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the private system either, but if it could be shown that the private system does pick up the slack and that you know general taxpayers aren't subsidizing private companies then you know to have to have parallel systems is not necessarily a bad thing but that's not being shown. pretty big qualifiers well, yeah but i think they're they're really the orientating qualifiers I can't, I can't think of anything else um especially when um the so in response to these reports from the ama and choice um listen to what the um the uh, private health industry had to say about it i'll quote from um uh, the industry, the um, oh, sorry guys, there it is. Um, they said um, uh, that that you know, if the government doesn't step up and start funding, um, well, you know, we're just going to have to pass on the costs to the insurers. In 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 effect, a, a veiled threat to the government that um, we'll just um, up the ante and therefore your rebate costs are going to go up and etc cetera, etc cetera, and trying to hold the um, government to ransom in a sense and I, and I think that really 
underlines where there's a bit of a power play going on with the private and public sector. And 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 they are the private insurance companies. They are that that death spiral is a is a real concern, isn't it? That they've got uh, decreasing input from their subscribers and an increasing outflow. That's not a great business model. No, and they, to a large extent they've only got themselves to blame. At the same time that wages have been as famously we know um, at the moment, um, have been since 2011 was the last step that I looked at was um, 2011 to 2019 wages have grown about 10%. Effectively nothing um, in eight years. Uh, premiums for insurance have grown 30%. So no wonder people are dropping out. And so if the private industry is saying, well, if, if you don't subsidise us even more, we're going to up the price, there's where the death spiral starts to come in. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Um, now, many of you would probably have in the past gone down to the pharmacy and said, oh, I get migraines from time to time or I, you know, I get some backache or period of pain and I need Nurofen Plus or Panadine, the codeine-containing compounds. And then some people were a bit distraught to discover in 2018, you could no longer just walk in and buy these things um, because the legislation changed. Those medications became prescription only um, just over a year and a half ago. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about why that was, what, what codeine is and why the changes were made. And then some new research which has come out uh, just last month uh, about what the, what the outcome was from that change. So that's, a, that's the a little segment I want to do this thing. Okay, can you... Um, <coughs> excuse me. Codeine um, is supposed to be good for cough. But, but <laughs> actually it isn't, but that's I another question a, entirely. I don't, I don't have a prescription. Um, can you explain to us what codeine actually does? You know, why it's different? Yeah, great question, Rainbow. Codeine is a, a pro-drug, so-called. It doesn't actually have any activity itself. So it's a painkiller. Once it's passed through the liver, it's metabolised into morphine. So the pain relief you get from codeine comes from morphine, which is what codeine is converted into. And this is one of the problems, that it is converted into the liver. There's an enzyme called 2D6, for those who want the details, um, and each of us has a different activity of that enzyme. And there are people, anywhere between 5 and 15% of the population, where that enzyme really doesn't work very well at all, and you get no morphine, effectively, from your codeine. So codeine doesn't work for everyone. There's a, around about 1 in 10 of the population where it does nothing. But there are also people who have a very rapid metabolism where that enzyme converts it very rapidly into morphine. They get a much higher dose of morphine of painkiller from the same dose of codeine. To the extent we've had breastfeeding mothers take codeine for headaches and that sort of thing, they want to call these rapid metabolizers, high levels of morphine in the system through the breast milk, and we've had babies die because of this. So it's an interesting drug coating, and this is one of the reasons that we felt it shouldn't be available just over the counter. And addictive. And of course it is, because it is morphine that it's being metabolised too, yeah, it is an addictive medication, and so misuse was becoming a major problem. What does that mean for you if, if, if we can no longer get it over the counter in terms of your practice as a, as a, as a general practitioner? Have you... Have you what happened when that yeah, so change one of the, came in? So a couple of the arguments, the pharmaceutical industry were hugely opposed to this so-called up-scheduling. They did not want 
people to have to go to the doctors to get prescriptions for this thing. And they said, oh, well, the poor old doctors, they're going to be swamped. They won't be able to see anyone for coughs and colds and so on because they'll spend the entire time with people wanting coding prescriptions. There was also the argument that what would happen is people would start seeking, if they had to go to the doctor, they would get stronger painkillers, so they wouldn't use low-dose codeine. They would use high-dose codeine or stronger painkillers. And these were the two arguments being put against so-called upscheduling. The research that came out uh, just last month um, put those arguments to bed, and it turned out neither of those things were true. Uh, There certainly hasn't been some sort of inundating flood of people at doctor's offices wanting these prescriptions. So what are are those people doing? So I've had a few patients who used codeine appropriately um, on occasions for their headaches or period pains or whatever who've asked me for the prescription, usually sort of by the by when they're for something else. Um, I've had no one ask me for higher strengths, and what the research has shown is that that has not happened. So the amount of coding that's been used has dropped by almost 50% since the upscheduling. The amount of poisoning has dropped by at least 50%, and nearly by two-thirds for the lower-strength coding poisonings. So it's been an incredibly successful campaign, campaign isn't the right word, change in legislation. If we, we think back, death rate from coding in this country, we used to have 150 deaths per year just from codeine overdose. And that's just the death rate. Lots, lots more harms separate from death rates. So if we're reducing the exposure by 50%, that's a major benefit. But more, just back to Rainbow's question, so what are people doing if they don't... Though if, 50, if there's 50% decline, that's just extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's great to hear, but it's extraordinary. So what are those 50%... What were they doing and what are they doing now? So uh, the research doesn't answer that question, but what we would assume from that is two things. There would have been people who were misusing codeine, who were taking large quantities of it, who were simply taking less because access, and this is well known in sort of drug policy area, that when you restrict access to an addictive substance, it becomes used less. So one would be simply a lower rate of usage. There would be other people who were not addicted to codeine but maybe preferred to use something like the mesindols or something for their headache. It's now no longer available, and they're simply using a a paracetamol or an ibuprofen instead. They're using a simpler codeine-free drug. So there must be some risks with analgesics. If they're being used in place of opium or opioids, um, there must be some... Uh, risks involved. As you say, the research is preliminary um, and it's positive and it's great, but we don't know what else is happening. Which possibly the other way around, because one of the things that was happening when there was codeine mixed with things like ibuprofen, so Nurofen Plus being one of the best known brand names, people were taking huge doses of this to get the codeine ignoring the fact that along with that they were getting toxic doses of ibuprofen. So we were seeing people with kidney failure because not of the codeine, they were taking it for the codeine, but it was actually the other drug that was damaging their kidneys. Now there's no codeine with those drugs like paracetamol and ibuprofen. My hope would be that if they're using those drugs, they're using them at the sensible doses for pain relief. Now, there's no research to back that up, but we haven't seen a sudden increase in poisonings from people taking massive doses of things like pure neurofin or paracetamol. I'm wondering about people that are taking it because they liked it. Well, what they liked was the morphine. So mm. that's exactly right. So mm. people took it. 
at least a, not everyone, of course, but uh, there was a group of people, and they people didn't know you could buy this over the counter. Nobody had any idea, mostly, that what they were getting was something which was converted to morphine. Um, but morphine, of course, in the system can have quite a pleasant little buzz. And yes, there were people who were taking this for that effect. There's um, uh, a concoction known as purple drank. Have you come across this, uh, Dr. Nick? Purple drank. Yes, it's it's it's. Um, I, I I was wondering whether you're a, you know a uh, a member of the hip hop community subculture. Purple drank. I'm sorry, panel people. A... You can see me across the other side of the desk here. I think not. Do I, think I not, look panel like panel a member of the what did you call it? the hip hop something sub- subcultures within hip hop? Yeah, yeah. Purple uh, drank is a, a concoction famous in in uh, hip hop subcultures, which is a combination of uh, codeine, cough syrup and soda. And, 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 it's, and it's to achieve the hit that you're just talking about. And so some cough syrups also contain codeine, mm. uh, which actually is a little by the by is an interesting one because um, I did a, a literature review on this because I was interested, why do we put codeine in a cough mixture? It turned out that all the research showing codeine was good for a cough was done back in the 40s and 50s when chronic bronchitis and emphysema were more common. And codeine was quite good at helping some of that cough be reduced. But, of course, what cough syrups are used for in the modern era is much more for viruses and coughs and colds and sore throats and that sort of thing. The receptors um, which um, trigger that cough are completely different. Codeine linked us has no benefit in the ordinary cough of respiratory infection. Codeine linked us is no better than just a cherry-flavoured syrup. So right. it was always a useless medication for the cough syrup that we use in modern times, and thank goodness it's off the shelf. So <laughs> is this... Um is this set a precedent for uh, taking other things off off the list of things that you can get off the shelf? Like, you know, is it uh, what have we learnt from this? Well, one of the reasons we went for this particular drug is because of those things I was saying earlier. How yeah. how um, how uncertain its metabolism is, how potentially dangerous it is, um, and and that meant. I mean, this is codeine has been taken. Uh, off over-the-counter availability in many countries. So Australia's not leading the way here, we're following. Um, but it's certainly a very effective template, I think, for how changing how we have access to dangerous substance can then change the risks that people are exposed to. And the arguments that the sky was going to fall in and all sorts of other harms were going to occur so far turn out not to be the case. Hmm. Interesting. What, um, just... Can you remind us on what actually happened with the rescheduling? So to get it um, uh, on prescription only means that the scheduling needs to take it up to four, three, yes, four? Schedule four, four yes. Yeah. So schedule four is a medication like an antibiotic, for instance, where you have to go to a doctor. There's no particular restriction on it, but you need to go to a doctor in order to get it. And does that put it on par with things like Endone? No, Endone is a Schedule 8, so that's a, <laughs> that goes up a notch. Damn, uh, <laughs> but the other, thing they, the other thing that's happened here in Victoria, because we're leading the way here in Victoria, uh, well, actually, Tasmania got in first, but we, we now have a, a, a real-time prescription monitoring system, and codeine is a part of that. So as well as um, having to get a prescription, those prescriptions are monitored by a central registry. So that if you want to go and get lots and lots of codeine from lots and lots of different doctors, that's going to be flagged uh, when the doctor writes that prescription. One of the things that occurred to me, um, Rainbow was uh, pointing towards um, 
you know, does it mean we might uh, regulate uh, other things that are currently available and, and, and reschedule them? I reckon within there, I don't think it's the whole story, but I think it's part of a story that we can tell about why it's better to regulate than prohibit. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about things like certainly medicinal marijuana, but even just dope in general, you know, um, that if you regulate it, um, then you can monitor it and you can work out who's using it, how they're using it and so on. Um, but this research doesn't suggest that there's now a black market in codeine, does it? Again, the research doesn't actually ask or yeah. attempt to answer that question, but certainly anecdotally, having been at the front line of this in St Kilda yeah. <laughs> over 30 years and seen what happens with medications and, and drugs, I see no anecdotal evidence that suddenly people are using codeine in a different way. Codeine has always been misused. Yeah. What it seems, and I think your point is really good, panel Peter, that with this change in regulation, we've actually had a very healthy, effective yeah. reduction in misuse, reduction in what might have been inappropriate use. So what you're talking about, Rainbow, people who maybe quite liked it or used it sometimes, maybe didn't need it um, because those people were taking certain risks. And now that's reduced. I think that's a good outcome. So there's the, um, the uh, from public policy point of view you know there's the potential for it becomes part of the argument for regulation of um, marijuana and, and others um, but I think it also is interesting in it shows that regulation rather than price pointing makes a difference so in public health of often it's price that is tried to use as a discriminator so whether that be alcohol and tobacco most notably but also whether sugar um, it receives a, a price premium and so on so you know, you know, economics tells us that we're all, you know, price sensitive. And you bring up a perfect point right at the last second of the show. Yeah, I want to talk more <laughs> about sugar. So we'll, we'll come back another time and talk about sugar. We'll talk about marijuana. We'll talk about um, more about public health. But for now... And hip-hop. Hip-hop. It's yeah. Many time. Yes, is Mozart hip-hop? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's our time to wrap up. It's just time to say thank you to our wonderful panellist, Rainbow. Thank you for being here, Rainbow. And a particular thank you to Panel Vita for contributions keeping this whole show on the road. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand and you can always download the podcast. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.